0: Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trick Hauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. So first of all, I'm just going to give you all a little bit of an update. In Oslo, we're back in our home offices, so I apologize that the sound quality in the next few episodes isn't exactly up to par. You might hear some leaf blowing or dogs barking outside. And this week, you might expect an American election episode, but actually we're going to do something a little bit different. I don't think there's going to be too much to say about the American election yet, so we're going to do an episode about that next week. And this week, we'll bring you a history episode. (laughs) Yergen Jensaheugen is a senior researcher at PRIO. His work mostly focuses on the Arab-Israeli conflict and the various diplomatic endeavors there, ranging from the late 1940s up until today. His book, Arab-Israeli Diplomacy under Carter, the U.S., Israel, and the Palestinians, came out in 2018. Today, however, we'll be talking about Yergen's article, A Palestinian Window of Opportunity, the PLO, the U.S., and the Iranian Hostage Crisis. Yesterday, November 4th, was the anniversary of the Iranian hostage crisis, and I thought it'd be a good opportunity to hear from Yudgin about this fascinating major event and how it still affects relations between the U.S. and Iran today. Welcome back to the podcast, Yudgin. You're my first uh, repeat guest, so clearly you did something right. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about your article, uh, A Palestinian Window of Opportunity, the PLO, the U.S. and the Iranian hostage crisis. And now this came out last year, is that correct? Yes, 2019. And we're going to be releasing this episode in conjunction with the anniversary of the Iranian uh, hostage crisis. I think a lot of people vaguely at least know about it and something about what happened. But this is an incident that still affects U.S.-Iranian relations today. Tell us a little bit about what actually happened, who were the players, and why has this had such ripple effects?
1: So basically, this is like... It's the event in uh, U.S.-Iranian relations after the fall of the Shah. So before uh, the revolution in Iran, the U.S. and Iran were very close allies, and this is sort of something we don't remember uh, at all. Um, But then a a revolution occurs in in Iran, and there is sort of this power struggle in Iran between uh, the leftists and uh, the Islamists. And on 4th of November 1979, around two to three hundred islamist students capture the u.s embassy uh, and take 66 uh, u.s uh, diplomats and embassy workers uh, staff of all all sorts they take them hostage Uh, and this is the start of the hostage crisis that lasts for 444 days Um, and the reason this is so significant is basically because it means that there is this total break up until then there was this u.s attempt to sort of okay we don't like this new regime we're uncomfortable with this new regime but can we somehow adapt you know can we can we kind of figure out a new way to work together and with this there's just there's no going back Uh, and it's just it's just one of those things because in international politics um uh, an embassy is just basically it's a, it's a sacred place. It represents the nation. So if you work at an embassy, you are the nation you represent, right? So, so a U.S. embassy staffer is America, so to speak. Mm. So so when these hostages are taken, it's basically the U.S. is taken, uh, taken hostage. And one of Jimmy Carter's advisors basically tells them they don't have 66 hostages. They have 67 because you are a hostage too. Uh, and this crisis basically just... It saps all the energy from the, the Carter administration. They Carter basically works on this you know, 24-7 uh, for those 444 days. And they're only released as Jimmy Carter leaves office. So they, uh, I mean, he had other things that didn't work out as well. But this basically cost him the election. Um, it, it ensures that Ronald Reagan wins the election. So it, it, it actually sets a new trajectory also for U.S. domestic politics. Uh, as well as as the U.S. Uh, you know uh, position in in the Middle East.
0: So, in your article, you write about the involvement of the PLO in trying to use their contacts to actually negotiate on behalf of the U.S. Why was that so shocking, and why would that have been so problematic for people to know at the time?
1: Mm. So this is. This is a really, for at least for me, it's a very, very interesting story um, because at the time, the PLO were considered terrorists by the U.S. And the U.S. had actually made a secret agreement, which was pretty, pretty public. Um,
0: a secret public agreement. Yes. So they, <laughs> they
1: made it as a secret agreement with Israel, but it was quickly released to the press. Right. Okay. So uh, although it was a secret agreement, everybody knew about it and people had seen the text. Uh, And what it basically said was that the U.S. could not talk to the PLO or could not negotiate with the PLO.
0: Oh, and maybe just to get down to brass tacks, we should spell out PLO and also say a little tiny bit about the PLO itself.
1: So the PLO is the Palestine Liberation Organization, and it's the umbrella organization for the Palestinian uh, groups. So whether these are armed groups, some of them are, you know, clearly what we would call terrorist organizations but others were you know simple uh, political organizations uh, workers unions uh, you know women unions uh, all sort of organization and the PLO is sort of the umbrella structure for for all of this um, and so th- so when the u.s basically promises Israel that they won't talk to the, or negotiate with the PLO unless the PLO uh, recognizes Israel and recognizes the parameters for the solution, of the Israel-Palestine conflict being basically an acceptance of the, the 67 borders or basically uh, an acceptance of the Israel that, uh, that is within those borders, the US would not negotiate with, uh, with the PLO. Now, this was understood as political negotiations. Uh, so what happens is when this agreement is made, the US still has so-called security talks with the PLO. And this is kind of what I find very fascinating. You have a group that you consider a terrorist organization, but you talk to them about security issues. Um, And traditionally, this had been basically in Lebanon. So there's a civil war in Lebanon starting in 1975. The U.S. has an embassy there, and they would sometimes ask the PLO to provide security for the embassy. They would ask the PLO for help in evacuating U.S. personnel from Beirut. Uh, They would ask them for information on the security situation in in Lebanon. All sorts of things. And this is this huge paradox, right? You you consider them terrorists. You don't want to talk to them, but they provide your security. Um, (laughs) And Kissinger, who was a very cynical player, he, uh, Secretary of State and National Security Advisor to first... uh Nixon and then Ford he didn't really see a problem here for him this was just politics right you can you can use somebody for your gain in one field and you can not talk to them in another field and and that's fine uh, Carter when he comes to power in 1977 he's a bit of a different president so for him there is this uh, there's a standard right you live up to a certain standard and if you cannot talk to somebody about politics You cannot rely on them for security so you cannot talk to them about security matters and and this is kind of where for me this article starts because i wanted to figure out why is it that carter uh, who actually wanted to talk to the palestinians he actually wanted to solve the israel-palestine conflict and not just the israel egypt conflict israel syria conflict but actually the core palestinian israeli conflict He wanted to talk to the PLO, but he was bound by Kissinger's promise. right? So he he didn't or thought he couldn't talk to the PLO. And this is Carter's policy until the hostage crisis. So the hostage crisis introduces a paradox also within U.S.-PLO-Israeli relations.
0: So this is super interesting, I think. And it seems like you discovered kind of a hidden history, really. Um, and and how how did that work? How did you find this out in your archival work uh, as a historian?
1: So it's kind of a secret story, but it's not a secret story. So people knew that the PLO had been involved. But interestingly, although this is, at least for me, it's something that just really strikes you as a super paradox. Um, and they actually had an effect. I mean, we we can talk about that uh, later, the, the effect the PLO had. But in terms of discovering the story... I was in the archive and I just saw this and I was like, wait, I kind of knew that this had happened, but I was there looking for the story of how difficult it was for Carter to talk to the PLO, given that he wanted to. And I was sifting through thousands of thousands of pages of the U.S. debating how they could circumvent this, how they could adapt to this regulation, how they could maybe get the PLO to come with this formulation that would allow them to talk to the PLO.
0: So you weren't expecting to find actual evidence that there was this this communication between no, them
1: not at all no so i was just seeing stacks and stacks of basically problems against talking to them. <laughs> and then suddenly i find these you know tidbits in the, in the archive of evidence that they did talk to them
0: so what archive were you in first of all and second of all because most people listening to this aren't going to be ha- have worked with primary sources as a historian like can you tell us a little bit about your your actual process
1: right so i was in the in the jimmy carter presidential library where basically they have every single document that ever went into the white house from his period so we're talking millions of pages wow Um, and they're you know divided up into themes and and all presidents have or make a library like this after they leave office uh what's kind of special with the carter library is is two things First of all, Carter was this extremely detail-oriented, hands-on president. So there's a much larger proportion of papers that went into the White House than in other administrations. A lot of presidents, they let the, the State Department deal with foreign affairs, and they, you know, let various departments deal with various things but carter wanted to read and have control over everything so there was just oh he wanted
0: to read yeah wow he
1: he read so much a president (laughs) who actually wanted to
0: inform himself
1: it's strange these days but but yeah he was he was probably the most reading president so to speak um he was complaining in the start of his administration that it was just hard to read all the memos he got and then he went to the speed reading course uh, (laughs) and then in his memoir he starts learning he talks about how he's learning spanish in his free time while president because he was just suddenly he had all this you know free time oh my god we have no
0: we have no excuses for (laughs) for not doing things (laughs) (laughs)
1: um so anyway so in this archive there's just there's just tons of material um and of course you go in with one goal and my goal was to look at how uh, the U.S. tried to include the Palestinian in, Palestinians in the peace process surrounding the Arab-Israeli conflict. So I was looking sort of for that track, and I wasn't particularly looking for Iran issues. I knew that when the Iranian revolution happens, this just drains the energy, so I knew it was going to be in what I was looking for as well. Um, but I, I didn't at the time have any sort of notion of this PLO-Iranian-U.S. Uh, connection. And then suddenly it just pops out. And this is one of the first times i've been in an archive where i see an article right there i saw this has to be an article because there is this paradoxical story and it's just it's just sort of a newsflash event the problem was that there just wasn't enough material right so usually i'm I'm a very heavy empirical uh, researcher where you know i need thousands of pages to be able to say a very small thing and here that particular story had such few pages i mean we're talking tens out of the millions right
0: so w- what did you actually find was it was it a memo was it what was this page uh, that you saw suddenly
1: so basically what i'm seeing is that suddenly the ambassador in beirut gets a green light to talk to the plo um and then suddenly there are these messages of what the plo has been talking to the iranians on their behalf and this was for me it was just like oh wow this this happened um, this has to be an article so I just, I just started collecting that particular story and I set it aside because I knew if I start telling that alone there's just not enough material to tell a full story so I, I basically put that aside I, I wrote my book about the Arab-Israeli negotiations during, during Carter's presidency and then I started researching the Ford period uh, which is where this paradox about the security in Beirut happens and when i saw that that paradox was taking place also under ford right that they had this this uh, you can talk security but you cannot talk politics then i saw that this is not just sort of this random event in in the carter presidency where they get desperate and they need to do anything to release hostages this was actually sort of a long standing us plo uh tendency uh, and that's when i kind of piece this together into this uh, into this fuller story, which is not just about that hostage situation and, and the negotiations leading up to the release of, of uh, some of the hostages, but that it was actually sort of a long-standing U.S. Uh, paradoxical policy.
0: That is super interesting. And I'm also kind of wondering, you maybe also have some speed-reading abilities because you're talking about thousands of pages how is it when you're yeah when you're like flipping through all these sources and you are looking for that one magical source that gives you an amazing article like this but how are you actually doing that i mean how much time are you spending looking at all these pages every day
1: so i'm not a speed reader Uh, (laughs) i read a a decent amount i read at a decent speed but you learn a skill set in the archives uh, and that skill set is to be able to scan a page and decide whether this is a keeper or not um because you cannot bring home 100,000 pages you can perhaps bring home 10,000 pages so when i go to an archive depending on on how big the archive is how big my project is i can spend 5 days there or i can spend 3 weeks there uh and what i typically do then is i i sift through pages and i take pictures of what looks relevant and then i store it on my computer in a citable manner so i can find out i can remember where in the archive i found it so if somebody cites my article or wants to check a document they can go to the archive and they can just tell the archive is there i want this document and the archivist can find it immediately uh, so it's a, it's a tedious process but i don't actually read every single document when i'm in the archive i just scan it with my eyes and say ah relevant not relevant relevant not relevant relevant not relevant and then i bring home 10 percent of what i go through so at the end of the day each time you're in an archive your head is just completely wasted you are just exhausted and you you start you, your mind is just dates and words and and things um, and it's when you get home that the real work starts and then i read properly between 50 and 100 pages a day and I start, you know, piecing piecing a narrative uh, together.
0: Yeah, it also doesn't help that a lot of these archives are kind of like windowless basement rooms, or at least this is my, my experience from the limited research that I've done in archives. But that can also be a little um, difficult after spending, yeah, 10 hours <laughs> in one of those rooms.
1: Yeah, and you need you need uh, lotion for your hands because it's so dry in there. You're just sifting through tons of pages. Your hands start to crack. It's It's really... <laughs> It's an archival dungeon sometimes. Yes.
0: <laughs> Whoever said that historians also, you know, don't have a hard time with fieldwork. They just don't even know. They don't know the struggles. Um. So, okay. Yeah, I don't think you prepared for this question. So if you can't answer it, that's totally okay. But uh, in light of the Black Lives Matter protests in the U.S., I was wondering if you could touch a little bit on <clears throat> the Iranian hostage crisis being used uh, as propaganda, or rather... Black Americans' oppression being used as propaganda by the Iranians, um, which maybe you can't talk about, which is totally okay. No,
1: no, this is, this is actually a perfect question. Okay. And, I, and I was kind of prepared for it because... You're prepared for everything. The, <laughs> no, so, so this, is, this, is, you know, this is kind of the hidden story within this semi-known story because it was public knowledge that the U.S. tried to use the PLO to negotiate on their behalf. But it really hasn't been told the story of them being successful. Because when the PLO is asked to try to negotiate, they go down to Iran. Um, and they find out that they have less influence than they thought. Um, and they basically try to convince the Ayatollah that, okay, we're not going to be able to negotiate for the release of all of them. But at least perhaps we can get a goodwill gesture. So they suggest to the Ayatollah that he can tell the students to release the African-American hostages and the female hostages as long as they're not CIA agents, because CIA agents then basically you know then you're actually then you're go- considered gold, right? That's the gold standard hostage uh, in, 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 in the Iranian context. Um, but so they, they, they do that. They release 13 hostages. Uh, women and African Americans.
0: And how many were there total?
1: There were 66 in total. Right. Uh, and then another one is released at a, at a later point because of health is- issues. But between this 20th November release, which is uh, the Thanksgiving release, uh, they had been sitting s- in 16 days at that point. There are no further releases. So the PLO mediated release is the only release until the final release. And this is very much undercommunicated in the history of this uh, hostage crisis. Uh, and one of the reasons for this is because the PLO did not want to become this to become public. They basically let the Tollah present his narrative about Iran fighting for uh, social justice in the. US. He basically made this declaration that uh, African Americans in the US and women in the, Afri- in, in the US, Uh, are oppressed in the same way that Iranians have been oppressed by the U.S. Uh, So there is this uh, anti-colonial connection made right there, uh, and it it becomes a propaganda point. Now, in the history of this release, it's basically seen as the Ayatollah just makes this release, uh, and it is a propaganda move what I have found indicates that it's actually the PLO that suggests this to the Ayatollah because the PLO have much more understanding of this connection in the US than the Ayatollah does Uh, and they have connections within the radical African-American movement in the US uh, the Black Panthers uh, etc so they see this not just as sort of a propaganda move for Iran but actually increasing their connections within this radical anti-colonial movement which can Give them a boost in the u.s even if they don't get sort of goodwill from the president
0: so did they actually have contact with some of these groups in the u.s directly or was this kind of a hope that in the future they could hold this up as evidence of their kinship
1: no no they they did wow okay um and there's been some work on this recently not by myself but there have been uh, books coming out recently about this connection so this is um, this is sort of something I haven't worked with, but it, it is uh, something that, that did happen. Um, and then there is just one small extra story of, of the PLO engagement. This is their one big success that we know and we can kind of confirm happened. But in, uh, in April 1980, the US also tries to forcefully release the hostage by uh, sending in uh, US military into Iran. And this is a massive failure. Uh, eight Americans die. Uh, and it's unconfirmed, but at least two works recently have claimed that the PLO released or negotiated the release of the bodies of those U.S. servicemen. Um, and this is definitely an untold uh, story, but I haven't been able to confirm it.
0: So where where is this rumor coming from then? Uh, well, it's in
1: two books. Okay. Uh, and I have contacted the author of both books, and they don't remember where they have it from. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, So I haven't haven't been able to to track up that story.
0: A historian's worst nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely.
1: Um, But so there is at least one and perhaps two cases of the PLO securing the release of of Americans in this hostage crisis. And they basically get no credit for it, um, which is is, uh, the interesting part here. Um, Now, the PLO hoped to get credit for it once Carter was reelected. And he wasn't um and Reagan wasn't really interested.
0: Wow, so it's interesting to think that if Carter had been reelected, I mean, we might have a completely different situation in in the Middle East today, honestly. Yes. That's wild. Um what exactly happened in the end with the hostage crisis? I mean, how how did it end?
1: Well, they were released uh as Reagan comes in. Um uh, and this has been this huge debate as well. So Were they released because uh, the Iranians feared Reagan, which is sort of the the popular narrative of the Republicans? Or were they released because Carter had finalized the negotiations in the last part of his uh, administration, which is true, but that doesn't necessarily tell us why the timing happened the way it did? Uh, One explanation is that the Ayatollah wanted to prove that he could oust the president, Right, that he he could do something that would outlast a, a U.S. president, which would sort of be a show of strength uh, from Iran. Um, I tend to believe that version um, because you know it. Uh, he he could have released them even if he did fear Reagan. He could have released them one day before. Um, so so I tend to 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 view it uh, that way. Um, and there, were, there was it was a complicated issue um, relating to, to Iranian funds that had been frozen as a result of the revolution and 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 all of these things uh, and it involved multiple tracks of of, uh, of negotiations uh, which were you know highly complicated and it's the reason it lasted for 444 days um, but U.S. Iranian relations have been hard to piece together after that.
0: So just closing I'm curious what was the motivation for the PLO to actually be involved in all of this I mean I can see that what you were saying that you know if Carter had been reelected they might get a payoff but this is a lot of work for them to do with no credit um so was it really just that future insurance or or was there something else that they were getting out of it
1: So the way I I I sort of explain this in the article is that when the PLO started uh, their their liberation struggle what they wanted to do was fight their way back to Jerusalem right? and they they used Amman as their military starting point and from there they would launch this liberation struggle and and fight their way back to Jerusalem by the mid-70s they realized that this was not feasible diplomacy was the way to go and they realized that the way to go back to Jerusalem was through uh, U.S. mediation because the U.S. could put pressure on Israel like no other party could. But the U.S. did not want to talk to them. And doing this provided sort of a, a way to get into Washington. If they could secure the release of these hostages, even if there was no written uh, quid pro quo, that would give them so much goodwill and that it would be very hard for the U.S. to basically deny that you know this had been very very helpful um but they were in a squeeze because Iran was at that time sort of the the revolutionary fan uh, you know bearer in the world they were like you know the, the anti-liberation struggle you know uh, epitomized you know and then things went downhill in Iran and and they didn't uh, maintain that symbolism but that was the symbolism in 1979 right they'd thrown out the US um so the PLO could not be seen to be too pro-US. That's why they kept it a secret, because they were in a squeeze from, let's say, you know the, the, the global left, so to speak, um, to not side with the US. And this was right after the Camp David Agreement uh, and the peace treaty between uh, uh, Israel and Egypt, which had sidelined the Palestinians. So they wanted back in, but they didn't want uh, to be seen as being pro-US.
0: Well, thank you so much, Adrian. This. It's super interesting, and I really hope that people will go and read your article because uh, it obviously tells even more about this in detail, and it's available on the Prio website in a a pre-typeset form, I believe. So go check that out, and thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for picking Prio's piece in a pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute, Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trig hauger Music by Martin Redemull.